0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I am allegedly not allowed to open these episodes with the word okay, <laughs> according to Nick. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker. I primarily practice in the greater Toronto area. I represent investors as my primary type of clientele. I'm an investor myself, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Nick Hill. Nick, how's it going? Very well, Dan, and again, thanks for exposing me with my my strict rules
1: on how do we open the show here. <laughs> yeah, welcome back everybody, episode 16 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I am the guy with the mustache in the photo that you look at when you listen to this. I'm also a mortgage agent practicing all over Ontario and licensed in Vancouver as well. And I'm also a real estate investor and that's how Dan and I got to know each other and that's how I've developed a ton of great relationships in the whole real estate space. So here we are back again for another great episode. And I wanted to start today off with a little story that I found quite interesting because we've talked about land before quite a bit in some other episodes and I just found this interesting. So. As of August 2022, Bill Gates has an estimated net worth of $117 billion, making him the fifth richest person in the world. Dan, when I say Bill Gates, other than his great dancing moves at the Microsoft conferences, what do you
0: think? I actually personally think of CN and CP Rail because that was his most notable recent Canadian acquisition. Oh. But I, I mean, I obviously think about Bill Gates being one of the richest men in the world pretty consistently. Well, on that
1: note, he is, you're correct to think so, and that's probably what most people think. However, here's a little known fact about Bill Gates and his former wife. When they were together over a number of years, over the past 10 years, they had acquired more than 269,000 acres of farmland. Interestingly enough, so those purchases were made with the help of the Washington based firm Cascade Investment, a number of other shell companies including farmland in nearly 20 states that cultivate vegetables such as carrots, soybeans, potatoes, some of which actually end up in McDonald's French fries. These details came after the agriculture outlet and the land report that the tech billionaire and his wife were the country's top private farmland owners. So at almost 300,000 acres, that's a lot of farmland for one family, one private person to own. That's just a small part though of the estimated 911 million acres of farmland in the U.S. 911 million acres of farmland. So while Gates appears to be the largest private farmland owner in the country, he's far from alone in wanting to incorporate farmland into his investing strategy. Other large financial firms have sought to purchase agricultural land as well, even if they have no involvement in the day-to-day farming operations. The Land Report also named Gates the top private Farm owners and several other families came well over 100,000 acres as well. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that 30% of U.S. farmland is rented out by owners who serve as landlords that aren't involved in farming like Bill Gates. That's pretty interesting that, you know, he's got that big of a stake now. Obviously, a lot of billionaires own property. Another notable one, Jeff Bezos as of today who's the third richest man owns $578 million worth of property, but those are basically just sizable estates. So the largest being a 10 acre, $178 million former Warner Bros. mansion. But I just find it really interesting that Gates has dived into the renting farmland and actually producing
0: farmland and then to go back and sell it to McDonald's Oh, yeah, just, yeah found, it, just found that interesting. Apparently, 30% of farmland in America, according to that stat you just mentioned, is is being used for basically investment yield, right? Pretty crazy. I had a farmer who I was doing a deal with once tell me like, you know, I was like, oh, what are you going to do when you sell? We're selling like a uh, $10, $20 million property, right, for development. You know, you're going to buy some investment properties or whatever. He's like, no, there's no better tenants than plants. And I was like, damn, that's a, <laughs> that's a good statement. But <laughs> the one other thing that struck me there is that today, Jeff Bezos is the third richest man in the world. Who's one in two? It's Musk
1: first, and then I believe it's an Indian billionaire. You know what? I probably should have had that in the show
0: notes, but- That's all good. Don't worry about it. Anyways. You can look it up. But yeah, I just found that that interesting as well. I feel like these guys, you know, they maybe watched a little bit too much John Dutton and just wanted to start going, buying massive amounts of land. It's funny because, you know- I think we pulled this from an Instagram post, right? And it's all straight commented from an Instagram on. It. Post, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> and, and you know, you look at it like all these people going full conspiracy in, in the comments, like, oh, yeah, he's going to, they're going to create a food pandemic or whatever. And like, who knows? Right? Like, I don't, I'm not sophisticated enough to get into those thought patterns. But I, I said, oh, no, it's probably, somebody said, oh, it was for 11% ROI that he would receive on that farmland. And I was like, no, it's probably something like 5%, right? Because that's what we're seeing in Canada. And mm-hmm. then the guy actually cited an article stating that, they're showing me that that yield was correct. So in the States, you know, I mean, it's actually, you know, it's better than a dividend stock really, if you think about it, right? Yeah. Probably more likely to get credit on it. You can probably borrow money to purchase the farmland. You're getting an 11% ROI by comparison to Canada, where we did this in our, our podcast about land, where, you know, we're looking at yields from like 2 to 5%. I think 5.5% was the highest mm-hmm. yield on farmland you were seeing. So I'm going to use that as my fully butchered segue. <laughs> and Talk a little bit about Canada and the very, very popularized strategy that some might know of, and we say it a lot here in Canada, mostly because of the weather, because we're cold af at all <laughs> times. It's BRRR. B R R R. There's like five different iterations of the number of Rs that you can have on there, but the strategy was popularized by Bigger Pockets years ago, right? And it stands for Buy, Renovate, Rent, Refinance, Repeat.
1: Yeah, I love this. I think it was actually Brandon Turner of Bigger Pockets who coined that term years and years ago. So why don't we go through each one of these points, Dan, and add some clarification to what they mean. Okay, so I'll start us off here. So the buy, obviously that means buy a property. Now the property you purchase should be a distressed property that needs some work to get up to code and ready to rent. Now, distressed is a you know can be an intense word but essentially just means you're buying a fixer-upper because of the home's condition It will likely be a cheaper purchase. A rule to consider when doing the Burr method when deciding how much to actually offer on the home is to follow the 70% rule in real estate. So that's avoid investing more than 70% of the property's ARV after repair value so for example, if a home's ARV is $300,000, you shouldn't pay more than $210,000 for the
0: home. So that's the buy piece. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'll move on to the rehab piece but I I forgot to mention exactly why we're talking about the burr here and the reason is because I get asked all the time whether or not I think it is still even possible to find burr properties in the Canadian market especially in markets where values are accelerating and we're going to go through exhaustively whether or not the answer to this question is yes or no. And if the answer is no, what potential other strategies might be. And the reason that I'm kind of using, I want to interject and put that in now is because I find that the best place to be successful on a burr, and we've heard this on flips and many other strategies, you always make the money on the way in, right? So Mm -hmm. buying, what Nick just mentioned, buying well and being extremely strict with your purchase criteria, not getting wrapped up in FOMO, not getting wrapped up in speculatory bubbles is where the true money is made in real estate investing. So, without further ado, number 2, the R, the first R in burr is rehab the property or renovate the property since the property is distressed or it's not in its prime operating condition. It will likely require extensive work. And this is where you're gonna get you're gonna get a, an ROI on the investment dollars, on the CapEx dollars that you'll be spending renovating the property. So you really gotta know what you're doing. And it could be renovating structural, it could be making safety or aesthetic improvements and you're preparing it to be rented because it wasn't rentable before. And you probably hopefully got a good deal on it because of that in the past. Love once that. you're done that, what do we do, Nick? Yeah. So
1: once you're done the renovating, and as Dan said, that can be as little as a coat of paint, you know, an extended driveway, a new roof, or it can be a full gut reno. Once you're completed that, you want to go back and rent out that property. Now, it might have been rented before, but since it was a distressed property, the rents probably weren't where they should be or needed to be. Now that you've rehabbed the property, you can go back and bring those rents up to market rent and actually get a much better return. So the third R, we've now gone through buy, renovate. Now we're at
0: rent. So you know, once you rent out the property, then you have to do a – Well, the best case scenario is you generate a rent roll, right? As a result of having a tenant in there, you start to see consistent rents. You've stabilized it. And I often we use the word stabilize rather than rent out. Once you have a stabilized rental income, you can present that to a lender and then you do you know, what we're calling here a cash out refinance. Refinance being the, the third R in the Burr method. You convert your equity into cash. You access the equity by taking out a bigger mortgage, borrowing more than you currently owe. The cash can be used for anything, including purchasing another property and that's sort of where that repeat element comes in. Keep in mind that you may not be able to refinance immediately after renovating and many lenders require you to own a property for a certain amount of time Before you can pull that equity out. And the other important piece being, you should have a target loan to value ratio in mind. And I would often recommend, you know, like not targeting, so you're really increasing the value, you're not increasing the leverage point too much, right? So if you go in at an 80% loan to value, you know, you probably only want to go back to that 80% loan to value on the new ARV, right? And so you really got to be thinking about how do I add the value to the property to squeeze that extra because you're only borrowing against 80% of that value you create at that point, right? Yeah, great point.
1: Okay, so let's go through the list one more time. We have bought the property, we've rehabbed it and added value. We've now rented it out to great new tenants and brought the rents up. We go and refinance after, you know, the six months or whatever the lender needs and we've got another chunk of change. Well, that last R is where things get fun because you get to repeat. So that repeat as Dan mentioned, could be using anything from buying another purchase to maybe you just want to take a break from real estate and take the family on vacation or something like that. Or you know, you want to, there's another opportunity in the stock market. The point is you have gotten that money back out of the deal. So the coolest thing about a burr, in my opinion is you're essentially selling the house back to yourself. So it has the potential to be a win-win-win. You get to keep the equity, you get the cash flow, but you also get all of your initial capital or more likely your joint venture or your private money's capital back out of the deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the key things to acknowledge about whether or not a BRRRR buy renovate rent, refinance, repeat strategy works in the Canadian market is understanding the change in value that you're able to do, right? So you really got to know the numbers before making a purchase. Those numbers include the purchase price, the renovation and carrying costs and what the units would rent for. And finally, the ARV or after repair value. So it is a pretty sophisticated equation. And in a lot of cases, I think people really want to like, they fantasize the design aspect. They get in love with the idea of, of making so much substantial change. And you really can't get wrapped up in that qualitative aspect. You got to really boil it down to the quantitative, the numbers of the deal.
1: Totally. And those numbers, do you start figuring out those numbers after you've bought, Dan? Or is that a number that you should know all those numbers well before you're even going and engaging a realtor or whatever it may be, door knocking?
0: Yeah, I would say so. Like My thing is, I think you really have to... Have an idea of who you are as an investor, and we talked about this in the past, right? Like, if you really think about what is the most perfect iteration of investing in anything, but investing in real estate, you're starting to see these, you know, Blackstones, etc., becoming private equity funds. You got to treat yourself like you're a private equity fund, and that means you really need to refine exactly what you want to achieve as an investor, and do not touch a deal unless it fits that criteria, right? There's nothing more that I could say everybody, they go out and they're like, I want to be a real estate investor and it's just this huge broad idea, right? And they're like, and then they're just – you can get any deal and cram it into that criteria, right? Anybody could be a, a real estate investor you know, and, and you could take the shittiest deal and stuff it into that. If you have very, very strict parameters and you know that these parameters are going to work, right? The house has to be worth this much on the way and it has to be worth this much on the way out and I can't spend more than this much to get it there and now all of a sudden you've got an investment thesis that you know will protect you and you find assets that fit that not the other way around
1: yeah i love that so you've spoken about how important the numbers are going in and knowing all these numbers right again that includes stuff like carrying costs and what it will and renovation costs but there's a few other things to remember when trying to execute a bird and that's the property that you're purchasing needs to have a value add. So you need to be finding again, quote unquote, distressed property and that value add is usually achieved through two things in this method. Through the renovations, whether they're substantial or more cosmetic and you're also achieving that value add from an investor perspective
0: when you achieve new higher rental amounts. Absolutely. And it goes back to, again, like thinking about the primary principles of how appraisers look at properties, right? Because on the way in, when you're buying a BRRR property, you're the one looking at the value and maybe a realtor is the one looking at the value, right? It's You're paying fair market value, but on the way out, you're not paying a fair market value in your ARV or after repair value becomes a function of what the bank thinks the house is worth. So you really need to understand appraisals, right? And appraisers look at very distinct characteristics of what a property is worth. And maybe it's worth actually discussing with your appraiser on the way in, right? Asking the lender for a copy of the appraisal once the deal is closed. So you can go through and see, okay, what adjustment factor were they applying for an extra bedroom as an example? If there was a comp up the road that had one extra bedroom than yours, did they? how much value did they subtract? Because now all of a sudden, you know when you're renovating, oh, if I had a bathroom, that's going to add $20,000, $30,000 to my property in the greater Toronto area, right? In a lot of these higher valued markets, you're seeing thirty dollars to $50,000 per bedroom value, right? You have to know what these inputs and outputs that compose the value of your property on the way out mean, right? How much value are they applying for the kitchen being dated based on a comp up the road, right? And having communications with the people who are establishing this value is incredibly important, right? And those are all relationships that you can have before
1: you do this. That's all information that's accessible before you go in and actually start to execute this stuff. You need to be pick any market. I don't care. If you want to go execute a burr in that market, you should be looking at every single house that's sold, every multifamily that's sold. You should be speaking to investors in that area. You should be trying to figure out who the
0: appraisers are in that area. For sure. And I think, you know, to contextualize that even more, like if you make a big mistake on an investment like this, if you make a mistake on a burr and you get pinned down, and it could cost you twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, right? So if you're thinking, oh, it sounds like a lot of work to go scour the entire market and learn every single property and know to an absolute T what I'm trying to do here and what every single dollar matters, then Think about it this way: If I were to write you a check right now for fifty grand and say, "Go scour the market and do everything that I just said," would you do it? Yes or no? I think most people would say yes. That's the stakes you really need to compare it to, right? So, you know, I don't want to belabor this too much of how important it is to do this right, but it is important to do it right before you even thinking about it, especially because, from my perspective, I don't really think burrs work in most markets in Canada. And so, the, let's return to the big question: Do burrs even work in Canada anymore? Nick? Yeah, I mean, so a few things about that. You know, I want
1: to just go back to the cautionary tale, right? You need to be aware of your original mortgage product, fixed or variable, the penalties, the length of time that you might need to wait to refinance, which can be anywhere from six to 12 months. You know, you need to be careful about any false assumptions on the cost of renovations and if the reno could possibly be rolled into the mortgage, like a construction loan, or where that cash is coming from if you need private money. And also, and we'll talk about this later, but what happens when and if the appraisal comes back low? So Dan, the original question, does a burr work anymore in Canada? So what I did to try to get to the bottom of this is I reached out to several investors and investing groups that I'm a part of. And luckily enough, across the country, we've got people in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and all over Ontario. And I got some answers. And the answers seem to be kind of. It kind of still works. So people are still executing this strategy all over the country. But what seems to be happening now, it's just becoming a lot more difficult to execute, you know, the quote unquote perfect burr, which is let's say, you know, you pull all of your equity back out. So there's no money left in a deal. That's, the, that's what really is considered the perfect burr. But that's becoming again more difficult for these two reasons and that is interest rate hikes have made it harder for the refinance to come back as well as appraisals are coming back low. So people are still using this BRRRR strategy, they just aren't getting the perfect Burr. Now you and I have talked about this prior, pulling a big equity takeout can be an absolute game changer for any investor or for any person. You know, I've seen friends and other investors go through this where they've gotten one great deal and they haven't sold the house. They still have the house. They've pulled hundreds of thousands of dollars out of it and have rolled that capital into other things. And that really gives a lot of people that kickstart, that jumpstart into actually being able to build your portfolio at scale. So a big equity takeout, a big refinance is a major,
0: major part of any investor's journey. Yeah, these major capital events, right? Like, exactly. I, I think you hear a lot of lifetime investors talking about this, even guys who, who really are primarily focused on buy and hold forever, right? But the reality is a couple of these major liquidity events, especially in a market like the one that we're in, right, where – you know, and I actually want to make an important distinction, but in a market like the one that we're in right now, where opportunities are beginning to present themselves, being liquid is incredibly important. It's important to be liquid in the stock market. It's important to be liquid in the real estate market. It's important to be liquid because we're heading, you know, I think you got all of the banks now forecasting a recession, right? And you probably just want some dry powder for the purposes of keeping the lights on, if anything, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing, sorry, before we move on here is somebody asked me, you know, about timing the market and we mentioned we don't believe in timing the market and then we also mentioned that you know over the next little while we feel that we'll see once in a lifetime buying opportunities right and so i want to be very clear here that i don't think that in the next 6 months to a year 24 months that those once in a lifetime buying opportunities are opportunities to time the market i think that you know in the past 24 months You haven't really seen opportunities. The market wasn't presenting you with opportunities. There was no deals that fit my criteria. So it's not so much that I'm timing the market. It's that the deals that become available time the market for me based on whether or not they fit my criteria. I have no problem not investing if investments are shit right? But now investments are popping up and you've seen this, like you've seen how hungry I have been to get into a deal because deals are popping up that make sense for me, right? They're hitting the cap rates targets that I want to get to. They're hitting the opportunistic targets that I want to get to. They're hitting the ad value targets that I want to get to. I never saw a deal like that for the past two years. Since COVID started, did not see a deal that fit that criteria, right? So I just want to make that distinction before we move on here. And then that's why we feel that there is an importance to liquidity and refinancing out of things, because you know, if you have that 100K sitting around, if you have a, a down payment sitting around, you can have the agility to respond to good opportunities as they become available in the market. And right now is one of those times where I feel like that's an important position to be in. Totally. It goes back to our favorite ghostwriter who is saying is patiently
1: impulsive, right? If you've got that 100 plus K line around, and you're pre-approved and you're ready to go and you know what you're doing, boom, guess what? All you gotta do is be on the lookout to pull the trigger. You don't have to be on the lookout, find the deal, and then go back and try to do all the other stuff. Find partners, find contractors, find the money, etc. cetera. Dan, you've got some great notes here. Why don't we get started on some of these?
0: Yeah, for sure. So Burr doesn't always work in Canada. And the primary reason is because in higher price markets such as the GTA or the Greater Vancouver area, Greater Toronto or Greater Vancouver area you know, they're attractive markets to investors, but they're more attractive to speculators. And so you end up paying this like speculative value, right? There's a value built in that people are paying for the ability to get in on on that appreciation gravy train that we've seen basically since the 90s, right? And the reason it doesn't work is because it's a pretty simple economic concept here, right? So houses in more popular denser areas are subject to the idea of land scarcity, Basically, that there's a limited amount of land to build new homes on and the land under the house increasingly becomes valuable over time. So, in certain parts of Toronto and Vancouver, the house actually subtracts value from the land because it needs to be demolished to build – to fulfill its new highest and best use in quotation marks. So, and the highest and best use is basically an appraisal principle that says, okay, this piece of land, is it – what is the absolute best – thing that we can do with it or a site improvement. So like in appraisal, you'll often hear there's a piece of land and then there's a site improvement. And a house would be considered a site improvement or a playground or a you know industrial building or whatever. They're that's what they are. They're the improvement on the piece of land. So if a home is no longer, or if a single family home as an example is no longer the best site improvement, then the Home is actually taking away from because it's obstructing that piece of land's ability to fulfill its highest and best use. And returning to the idea of fulfilling, you really want to check boxes for appraisers when you're, you have to think about well, if you're flipping a house, you're selling the house to whoever's buying it at the end, right? So you're tailoring it to a, an end user who wants to purchase that property from you. If you're burring a house or if you're planning cash out refinance, you're presenting that house to an appraiser, right? You're presenting that house to a lender. So you need to think about what they care about. Yeah. I just want to stop there for a second and just say I didn't even
1: think about that, that in certain parts of not just Toronto and Vancouver, but I guess any very affluent neighborhood probably across the country or any very desired neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, that's why you see people go in and tear a perfectly good house down. You know, when I was right. living in Vancouver, I remember seeing mansions that were, you know, 10 years old being torn down because – someone wanted to build their new mansion on there. So just a really cool tidbit there of, of information that houses can actually subtract the value because that's
0: that's not what we usually think as investors, right? right? It's usually all about the house. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's like you know the one-off cases. I think the other piece of the puzzle that's important here is that there's also something called the development charge. So if you want to bring a new unit, and we, you've heard us talking about this probably on here a lot where Toronto increased the development charges. This is basically a one-time tax that a builder or developer needs to pay to bring a new unit to the market. So you want to build a condo building, you got 1,000 units in it, you have to pay 1,000 development charges, right? Same thing for a house. And so because there's already one house on that, sometimes you'll get a deduction because that development charge has already been paid. The house already existed on that unit, right? And the reality is on those units where people are tearing down houses and building a new one, they're still doing a burr, you know? It's just the second R in their strategy is redevelop or rebuild, right? (laughs) And or reposition, you know, if you're taking it from residential to office or, you know, and so these are people who are using the same strategies, just not for small individual investors. It's actually funny, you know, in the context of the interview that we have coming up that we've already recorded we've heard from massive fund managers in the canadian market that they're basically using iterations of the same strategies that we use for regular investors they're just using it at scales with you know a couple 3 4 extra zeros at the end of it right
1: that was cool to hear that a lot of real estate strategies all boil down to just the same simple things it's just you
0: know economies of scale right. yeah so to really distill this down when the land value becomes More and more valuable, it becomes a greater portion of the total value of the property, right? So let's say in Toronto, you've got a property that's worth a million bucks, right? Or in Vancouver, you've got a property that's worth a million bucks. I don't even think you're going to find one, but let's just say, (laughs) hypothetically, for ease of math, and that there's an absolute teardown house on it, right? That house is probably only worth 100 grand and the land under it is worth 900K. So at that point, if you go put 100K into that house, the return on investment of that capex, is going to be relatively much less significant than it would be if you were to spend that same 100K in a market where the land value is basically zero, right? Mm -hmm. So, the relativity becomes important and the denser the area, the more land scarcity that is in an area, the more difficult it is to really yield or appreciate the value of a property through renovations or through CapEx, right?
1: Yeah, really interesting. So, it really goes back to – geographically where the potential project is located because what I'm hearing you say is that the Burr method just like my investors are telling me does work mostly in in some places though, maybe those are most likely secondary and tertiary markets but if we're in you know, the central business district or the downtown core of, of any of the major cities across the country, and we have a decrepit house it might actually be a lot smarter just to to tear that house down even though there is a cost to of course tearing that house down
0: right right and so what you want to look for is you know the areas where you can still add value to canadian real estate from my perspective is by cre- is making more housing units right so the same way that you hear that concept of land scarcity inexpensive areas. We also have housing scarcity broadly in Canada, right? We have a shortage of housing and what a lot of people are calling a housing crisis, right? So the value creation that you can have as an investor who wants to do something like a Burr, it almost echoes what I was mentioning that developers will do is they'll redevelop a property, right? And so now we're starting to see almost at a national level, but definitely at a provincial level, policies that are coming out basically in support of the creation of new housing units, so accessory dwelling units, right? And so if you can add basically an accessory dwelling unit to a property, that's where you start really seeing that increased value that, that you're not seeing in a lot of these bigger markets. And you're just starting to, I mean, in Toronto being a good example, hear about the addition of garden suite policies, right? Laneway house policies. These are things that now have been adopted at a provincial level in the province of Ontario. And we're going to do an entire episode on detached ADUs, detached accessory dwelling units. just been a lot of research to get an idea for what policy looks like across the country. But getting an understanding for how you can create more housing is really where you're going to get that major alpha, that major increase in value on a property. Yeah, I love it. And I'm sitting here smiling because I'm just waiting for you to (laughs) introduce
1: your Acronym that you've come up with that hopefully in ten years from now will will be the new Burr method. We've actually got a couple acronyms here, everybody, and we'd love your opinions on them afterwards because I think Dan's put together some possibly you know groundbreaking stuff here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so we basically tried to come out with our own version of of the Burr, which I don't think works any longer at its core in the Canadian market, right? So in the Canadian market, I don't know if you can be a successful at scale investor by doing the buy, renovate, rent, refinance and repeat strategy, the burr strategy, right? So what I came up with and it's a little it needs a little bit of work, it's a little rough around this the is, edges and the I challenge you to come up with title. one too, but <laughs> it's called the badass method. B is buy, uh, approvals, detached ADU, ADU, stabilize and Sell the blackstone. Know it but as I, or just or sit on it, right? Or and so I have to figure out at the end because a sit on it'll probably end up being a refi or whatever it is. But I think that to me, if you can buy a property that you can add two units to, that's really where you're gonna start to see that major alpha on increasing the value of a property, right? We've got two more little
1: ones as well. So why don't we go through the two other acronyms we've came up with? And then actually let's go through and unpack how an actual deal would look through that before we before we yeah, close yeah, let's out do that. here. So the next acronym that I was given five minutes to come up with when Dan said, Hey, come up with your own acronym before the show. Now you're the one throwing me under the bus. Well, come on. <laughs> so we've got two more here. The first one is BARF BY ADU Rent Finance. And the third and final is Bra, actually. Buy, renovate with a W on the with end. a W, buy, renovate, Airbnb, and wait. So Burr, you know, it's it's catchy,
0: but is it as catchy as badass barf or, or bra? I don't know. Those are got got a nice ring to them. That's our new real <laughs> estate crew name, the badass barf bras. <laughs> Yeah, so I think if you if you look at a deal, this is really where again, it functionally is the exact same thing as it, right? It's buy renovate, and you know prior to renovation, you need to get approvals in in the Canadian market, especially like it's not these aren't renovations where you're just going to be going and throwing some makeup on a pig, right? It's not a paint job, it's not a trim job, it's not you know these aren't minor things. If you're going to be doing an entire accessory dwelling unit or two entire accessory dwelling units, in my strategy, where it's you know getting a detached ADU and then an ADU. You got to go get approvals first, right? So this means getting a team of engineers, uh, you know, you need to get, submit a drawing package to the municipality. This is going to take a long time. From my perspective, I'm if I'm rep- and I represent transactions of this nature all the time, right? More on the development side, but developers will often ask for their entire closing period to start doing that process because it mm-hmm. takes a long time for a municipality to review the documents, et cetera, right? So even in between those two, it's like buy and then before you even close on the property, and this is where I was trying to come up with another strategy where it was like tie it up rather than buy it, right? And then get all your approvals and only close if you get get approvals. Like a lot of developers will buy and they'll only close, they'll only take possession of the property when it has their approvals, right? Interesting. So you've closed with equity, right? You've closed with equity that you've created in the property before you even took possession of the property. Just right? based off the fact that you have done all the pre-work and spent all the money right. for the
1: plans, the approvals, you've been to the city, you've got the work permits, right. etc. Okay, so we're on
0: b a, now we're on the first, we're on the D here for yeah. Of, of bad So the detached ADU. So I kind of put detached ADU first just because it made my acronym work. But <laughs> But then in the ba- background, I was like, I'm going to have to substantiate this somehow. And I think that doing the detached ADU actually makes the most sense first. Because it's detached, the renovations on it will be less intrusive to the other tenants. So what you want to do is get that one done. And then you have a tenant in that. So you're already getting some income out of the detached ADU. Then you move on to doing the primary dwelling. So by Ontario code, and this is a code that's been echoed, I think, from from BC with their laneway suites, where basically and, – and it's starting to come across a lot of different – at a provincial level, there are building codes that basically allow this. So in, in Ontario, you cannot challenge the addition of a garden suite anymore. You can't take them to the Ontario – I don't even know what it's called anymore – Ontario Municipal Board or uh, LPAT. But basically, you can't fight – the addition of a garden suite. And this is likely because we're in a housing crisis going to become a more national thing. Same thing in, in Vancouver or in, in most of BC. So, what you can do is you have the one main building, you can put two units in that building. And then you can have a detached building or coach house, some call it a coach house, garden suite, laneway house, etc. Within that building, you can have a, a third unit. So, you have three units in total on one single piece of land, right? So, the detached one I would do first, get it stabilized, think about it as its own property and then the tenant moves in there and the next renovation that you're doing, the ADU is not intruding on their life whatsoever because it's in a separate building, right? Then you go and you add your two two units, you cut your main building into your two units. So, that's, so now we're at buy, approval, get your approvals, get your permission, your building permits, etc. Detached ADU, ADU and then stabilize. So you've already got your garage rented, you're already getting a bit of cash flow, you're not bleeding out so much now you stabilize those two units in the main house and then you either sell it if you want to realize and you know get your liquidity and move on to a bigger better deal or you know you sit on it and that would entail from my perspective doing a refinance but i was trying to figure out how to make it bad arse but i just <laughs> i couldn't get there to get the refinance in so give me give me a couple of weeks and i'll come back to you with a better strategy we're working on it guys it's a work in progress no honestly man i, I love this i think that you know,
1: I think that you're totally right that the burr has become one has become so commercialized, and I just mean in the sense that like you can, you know, you got every Instagram real estate influencer peddling the burr method. It's it's over a decade old. It's been done to death in the states. It can still work to a certain extent, but I think that there's more value add opportunities, and I think that's what you're getting at here, Dan.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like from my perspective, when I look at the burr, everybody knows about it, right? It's like it's a crowded trade. Yeah. The Burr is a crowded trade, right? It's there are so many people out there looking to buy, renovate, rent, refinance. Everybody's thinking, oh this is how you do it. It's more it's too nondescript. The very few deals fit perfectly into that box anymore. And because there are people doing it, there are large funds doing it, there are ma- like there are these guys on on Instagram that are going to go through a massive deleveraging that you hear, oh I got 4000 units, boom or whatever, you know, like. <laughs> and so there's too many people trying to do that same strategy. You need to be, especially in the Canadian market, you really actually have to break it down to be what's specifically can we do that's more reliable as a strategy because there's way too much room for error in buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat, right? There's just for the average person, it's not specific enough. The value creators aren't even clear. Most people don't know how to actually create value from renovating a property. And it's not like 10 15 years ago when that strategy first came out where you could literally do pretty much anything as long as the property looked nicer yeah. than it was before and job and you made 50k boom man like i remember my parents telling me stories of when they were trading real estate in the 90s and they used to have these things called mop and glow deals right like you'd <laughs> literally like not like you literally just clean the house wow and make like yeah and make like a huge take huge me back lift, to the right? 90s yeah, come so- on yeah. So people were doing these mop and glows back then. And then it was like paint, you know? Now it's like what is it? Flooring paint kitchen, maybe, right? Yeah. Like a bathroom, right? Like and so it's what today can you actually do to create value in the Canadian market? I don't I actually don't think if you're especially if you're cost cutting and whatever, I don't think your little mop and glow, I don't think your paint, I don't think your flooring, et cetera, is gonna do it in the Canadian market anymore, right? I think you got to be saying, Okay, how do I create value for for the Canadian real estate market? And right now that is bringing housing units to market. And right now. Like you know, you'll often hear even appraisers look at this across different municipalities. They have a per door price, right? We talk about this a lot. We're trying to buy, you know, like investors, funds that we're working with have have mandates in certain cities, Cornwall being an example, Northern Ontario being an example, where they'll buy any building as long as they're getting it for under one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a door, right? Yeah. Appraisers know what those numbers are as well. Appraisers know what the market is willing to pay. So if you're adding units, think about this, right? If you're adding units you're bringing a unit to market. If it costs you 50K or 100K, even if it costs you 125K to bring a unit to market, but you know that the market's willing to pay $5,000 more, you just created value. Yeah. That's what you need to understand as an investor right now.
1: I love that. So I just want to, because I've been thinking about like what the perfect badass property would look like here. And and from, my, from what we've just spoken about, I'm thinking probably a bungalow or probably some home that is set for some type of up-down duplex conversion. You want to buy that on the way and you, you, ha- you got to figure out the approvals. And, and what that'll mean as well is that you're going to want to be looking for ideally a bungalow that can be duplexed, but that has a separate minimum two-car garage or a separate building on the property. So right. if you guys are looking for for that, and if you're already doing the bird method and or doing the basement conversions and all that kind of stuff – just literally make sure that the next one you buy has a garage on it and you can do exactly – you can be one of the first people that does one of the badass methods in in Canada. If you're doing anything like this, please reach out to
0: us. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, we did have a listener actually reach out from Barry who has a 400 square foot detached garage that they're doing a conversion like this. and I think she mentioned that their contractor's quotes were pretty high, like – 200K or something like that. And, but I was like, you know, the per door in Barry probably is 250K right now. I would say, like, if you're buying a duplex in Barry, it's minimum 500K, right? Probably way more than that. But, you know, so, so you're still getting the lift, right? Like, the lift still exists there. And so it's just really understanding again, okay, like, what are my costs? And then what is it actually worth to the market, right? So we're going to be exploring that one, hopefully as a case study. Actually, we've been sort of involved in the deal, trying to you know help with the, on the contracting side and and some consultation, etc. So maybe bring that that on as a case study for for this method. But I did a deal like this in Newmarket. I mean, you, I don't know if you went in the the garage unit, but. I bought a house that had a seven hundred square foot detached garage, right like that's huge it's that that's big but and it converted it to a one bedroom. My approval phase was a little bit easier because it was grandfathered because it had already had plumbing bathroom etc, and a kitchenette to the garage, but it wasn't obviously known to the municipality, but it had existed prior to nineteen ninety four which makes it a grandfatherable unit and and worth noting in certain municipalities understanding when your accessory dwelling unit building codes came into place because If a unit predates those codes, then you can often get grandfathering. A lot of people will do this in smaller mixed-use stuff, etc., where they'll actually buy simply because the place had a bunch of illegal units prior and they can get that grandfathering. So understanding the approval side on this strategy especially is really important. Know your municipality, know your building code, know your provincial code. Have good relationships and a good team, which we're going to do an entire episode on what building that team looks like. But have a good team of people who can help you get to that approval phase as fast as possible and as efficiently as possible. Yeah, I love that.
1: I don't know why everything's grandfather. I don't know why they to do that till the the grandmother's out there. But before we close out here, I just wanted to quickly give what the other acronyms that we that we said what they mean. We won't go into them. We'll save these for another episode as we refine them. But it's buy, ADU, rent, and finance. That's BARF. And then buy, renovate, Airbnb, and
0: wait. That's bra. Both probably need a little bit of work, but hey. They all need a little bit of work for sure. But you know what? What we'll do is we'll put it out to the audience. If you have a, a more descriptive acronym that we could start using for how to make money in the Canadian real estate market, since burrs do not work ex- especially well at their core, right? I think they work well at 40,000 feet, but they do not work exceptionally well as a scalable strategy across the country. We want to have a scalable strategy across the country. So please send us an email to the email address in the show notes and let us know your acronym and we'll happily credit you because <laughs> we want to we take this thing to the moon. Yes, we do. Anyways, guys, that's our
1: time for today. Thanks so much for listening. Again, my name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent. Daniel Foch is a real estate agent and we would love to work with you whether you're in Ontario, BC or across the country. We've got an amazing network of people, agents, investors. So feel free to reach out any questions, concerns or suggestions for the show. Thanks so
0: much. The Canadian real estate investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage
1: Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.